Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. I will not be up here next week. Um, I would have all of the people who reserved leave very quickly. So thanks, uh, Jim, for blessing us with that. Oh, man, I love that song. Um, I am so blessed and honored and privileged to preach to you today on Pentecost Sunday. If you missed my sermon from two weeks ago, wow, you need, first of all, to slap yourself. And second of all, you need to stop listening to this sermon and actually go listen to that one first. And then after you listen to that one, then you can listen to this one, uh, because this really is all about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the mystery of the gospel that's been revealed. Christ has revealed to us, He has revealed to us that the great mystery of the gospel is that He lives within us. He lives within us. It's so interesting to me. It's been so enlightening for me to look at the Word of God this week and, and, and realize it's not just ink on paper. This is the breath of God on a page. And when we have the Holy Spirit illumine our hearts and our minds as we approach the throne of God in prayer and as we approach the throne of God in our time of reading, something miraculous is happening. We are literally being taking and part of a miracle of God taking that which was dead and bringing it back to life. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be hopping in uh, to the second part of Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can grab that. Uh, but before I get into our text, I just wanted to take time to address the state of our nation. I think it would be, um, I would be remiss if I didn't. So just to, just to think about all the things that are happening right now, the things with George Floyd. First of all, as soon as we come off of this coronavirus thing, we have this huge escapade with George Floyd and the whole thing with Minnesota. Yes, I've seen the videos. This is some serious stuff. I've actually watched uh, probably too many videos of people using their platform by which to speak against such evilness, which that's exactly what it is. Uh, it is the work of Satan, but nonetheless, what I've noticed in all the things and all the speeches and all the times people have spoken on, the, on what the media shows us is that not a single one of them has gotten the problem right. Constantly people pick and, uh, pick and point at racism. Constantly people pick and point at cops and, and the, the division between cops and black people. And, and if we really want to, to fix the real true issue, we have to realize that there's something deeper at play than just racism or just hatred of another brother or sister. But actually, the real issue is sin. It's a sin issue. It's not a race issue. It's not man hating another man. It's none of that. If, if we want to get rid of those things, those are fruits of sin. The root is sin. And so if we're ever going to fix it, I wish I could see somebody who's given the platform on CNN or given the platform on ESPN or given the platform on any mass media to say, hey, listen, the issue is deeper than just skin deep. It's not racism. It's a heart issue. It's only an issue that can be fixed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is sin. Listen, for years I have been praying for revival. Well, this year the Lord 
this week, the Lord has really spoke to me and showed me that revival really is for the people of God. It's that, it's that the people of God in the church would, would, would rekindle, would be reignited with the passion that should come from the love of Christ. Well, he told me this week to start praying for something different. Instead of praying for revival, which is for the people of God, start praying for an awakening, that the lost would be saved. And so this is the background by which God is saying, hey, listen, the darker the society gets, the more chaotic it gets, the brighter the gospel becomes. And so my prayer going in is not just praying for revival anymore. I'm praying for an awakening. And if you look at history, we are long overdue. Usually there's about 30 to 40 years between each awakening within the context of history. And we're at about year 50 to 60 to 70. It's about time. And it's, it's, it's God is waiting on the church of God. God is has now created the revival that we might begin to pray for an awakening. God is in the midst. The problem is sin. And the only way we're ever going to fix terrible, terrible things like what happened in Minnesota is if we tell them about Jesus Christ. The fact that he died for our sins. Us being people who did not deserve that. God in the flesh came and took our place. That is the message that needs to be preached on every platform around the world. That's the only message that will ever fix. See, what happens is, is they play the, th- the mass media plays things on platforms that only divide us. And when we are divided, we can be controlled. Just be very, very careful. All right, enough of that. I'm done addressing the state of our nation. Now let's get into the text. Let's, let's point our hearts, our minds, and our souls back into Christ living in us. And, and actually today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of the flip side of the coin. If, if, if Christ in us was one side of the coin, the other side of the coin would be this. Christ in us is one side. The other side is us in Christ. And we can see this. Wait, wait, wait. We can see this throughout the whole book of Colossians. Let me just show you a little bit. Um, and you'll see it in our text as we continue because I want to point out to you before we get there. But catch this. Colossians 1.14. In him we have the redemption. Colossians 1.16. In him all things are created. Verse 17. In him all things hold together. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Verse 22. Now he has reconciled you in him by Christ's physical body. Verse, verse 2, 3, in him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 6, just as you receive Christ, continue your lives in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, which we'll cover today, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised. And verse 12, you have been buried with him in baptism, in him. See, this whole idea of Christ living in us is to point us back to the opposite truth is that we are in Christ. See, here's the thing. Christ living in us ought to shape our identity. It ought, to, it ought to be the thing we build our whole lives around. We're no longer white. We're no longer black. We're no longer middle class. We're no longer low. We're not poverty. We're not, we're not, we, it doesn't matter what car we drive. It doesn't matter the house we live in. It doesn't matter the things that we do, the job that we occupy. What matters is Christ. We, just as Christ is in us because of the Holy Spirit, we also are in him. That's the flip side of the coin. So let's see it in our passages today, starting in verse 8. This is what the Word of God says. We're going to read it in fullness. We're going to pray, not only for our time together, we're going to pray for our nation, and then we'll continue. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you have been circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful in a time where we see so much division, in a time where we see so much chaos, God, that you bring a message of unity. And so, Father, I pray that today as we approach your word, that you would unify our hearts as a church, Father, and that you would begin to unify our nation with this message. This is the only message that will fix the problem that is out there. The only message that will fix racism, the only message that will fix hatred, the only message that will fix the garbage we see all over the world is the message of the gospel. So Father, help us in a time where they're trying to to divide us, where the world is trying to divide us, help us, Father, be unified in this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place, that we might have a a right relationship with the Father in heaven that that we might have access. We're so grateful today, Father, for the access. We thank you for the coming of your Holy Spirit and the fact that Christ living in us means that we are also in you. Help us, Father, to abide starting here and now in this text today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm just going to go over some things that I see in this passage. I don't have very many points. I just want to to point out a few things. I'm going to build a little bit off of what Jim preached on last week because, well, he already told you that I love all that stuff about moral relativism. And of course, here in verse 8, it gives me a little opportunity to talk a little bit more, to go a little further, if you will, so you know I'm going to take the time. But here, let's look at this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Here, Paul actually continues with that same military language he was using back in first five. If you remember, Jim preached on, he mentioned about it, about the word order and the word firmness, the, the order and firmness of their faith. Paul was rejoicing in it. That's that same flavor he's trying to give. If you want to translate it a different way, it's, it's like this. It says, beware lest any man take you captive. And what Paul is pointing out, he's saying, hey, listen, these people, these false teachers, they are not winning the lost. They are literally ca- kidnapping people. They are taking them hostage using hollow and deceptive philosophy. And notice what he says about the hollow and deceptive philosophy. They depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Let me just take time to look at this. So, When it comes to any type of teaching, the most important thing about any teaching you'll ever hear is its origin. 
And this, if you ask me, like, William Dillon, why is it that you believe Christianity is real? Because if you guys know me, I'm a huge thinker. I love philosophy. I love to think outside the box. I'm, I'm just that kind of guy. That stuff gets me ticking. It gets me rolling. Will, why do you believe that of all the truths that are out there, why do you think Christianity is the right one? And this is it. It's origin. See, every other religion out there is based on what we do what we deserve, the things we can earn through good works, and the gospel is nothing about us. See, when things are man-made, they tend to be centered around man. But when things are God-made, God-sent, they center around God. And so when you see the gospel, we're saved by grace through faith, has nothing to do with works. It's an automatic light bulb moment for me. It's a light bulb moment. And, you, and you've heard this phrase before, right? They're based on depending on human tradition, right? Uh, Jesus actually speaks of this in Mark chapter 7 when talking about the Pharisees who, who elevated human tradition over the law. Or, or um, how about in 1 Peter when Peter speaks about human tradition and he um, condemns it. Um, so, he, so Paul really is speaking of the origin of these philosophies that seem to be creeping into Colossae. And he's saying, hey, listen, this stuff that you're hearing it's only human conjecture on the function of reality. They're only try, they're only, they only can know so much. It's really hollow and deceptive if you look at it deeper. See, within every religion, there's only two methods of salvation. By grace or by works. And Christianity is the only one solely based on grace. And let me give you some examples. That's right. I'm going to give you some examples of other world religions and how you can get into heaven. First off, Buddhism. They have a practice called merit, which relates to the good works and its place, not only in the pursuit of enlightenment, but also the quality of your next life. That's right. They believe in a rebirth or a reincarnation. So depending on how you live here now, really determines which realm you're going to be reborn into, whether it be the diva level, which is or Deva, which is heavenly, or the Asura, which is the demigod, the, the Manusha. You can look this up on your own. Uh, the Prada, which is the ghost, or the Naraka, which is the resident of hell. I mean, literally, they have all these different levels, the top being heavenly, the, the lower one being hell. And, and the only way you can get to pick and choose which one you go to is how you behave. And then we have Hinduism, right? This one is where the doctrine of karma comes to. Now, I preach this so many times, but you know what? There's some things I'll just, I'll just beat the dead horse on. And this is one of them. Listen, the doctrine of karma is one of the greatest syncretisms in the church. This is the thought that if I do good things, good things will happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things will happen to me. Let me tell you something. That is completely unbiblical. The cross crushes karma. If you know anything about the gospel, realize this, that the worst thing, which is undeserved death, happened to the best perfect, the perfect best person, the perfect person, Jesus Christ, so that the best things, the blessings of God, the obedience of God, acceptance into heaven can happen to the worst people, you and I. That Literally, the cross is the, the antithesis of karma. Karma should not be in your vocabulary. It should be a thought in your mind. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such thing called biblical retribution found in the book of Proverbs where it does say, if you do good, good things seem to come your way. But that's not how it works all the time. Too, I have seen too many bad things happen to good people and too many good things happen to bad people for me to believe in karma. If karma were real, then I would deserve death. 
and I would not have any way out of it. Listen, and catch this. This is why the whole book of Job is written. People kind of read over it and they're like, wow, this is really old. Did you know the book of Job is the very first book ever written in the Bible? The very first one. It's the oldest. And think about what they're doing in this specific text. They're wrestling with this concept of karma, if you will, right? It's this metaphysical struggle between three truths. That God is just, Job is innocent, and good reaps good, or karma. Or if you do good things, good things happen to you. And the whole book is these three friends and Job trying to figure it out. Which one isn't right? These three cannot exist all at once because Job is suffering. And if he's suffering, it has to be because he did bad things. And even God himself said that Job was blameless. So which one is it? And at the very end of the book, you see which one falls. It's not that God is just. He's certainly just. It's not that God, Job wasn't innocent. He was innocent, even in the sight of God. It's that good does not reap good. The whole book of Job destroys karma. The very first book ever written. God He's like, all three of these things can't happen at once. Okay, I'm, I took way too much time on Hinduism. Let's keep going. Mormons, right? They're like, hey, yes, accept Jesus as Lord and Savior plus good works. Well, let me tell you. Let me, let me tell you where I point all my Mormon friends. Let's go to Galatians 1.8. It's not on your screen, but I'm going to read it here too. You can just write it in your notes. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Notice the origin of Mormonism. A man goes into the woods, an angel meets him, gives him ten golden tablets with a special language on it by which he interprets and writes the Book of Mormon. Bro, that is exactly what Paul is talking about in Galatians 1.8. That is it. The origin of that story is off. And that's what matters when it comes to teaching. Or how about Jehovah's Witnesses? They say you can never really know if you get into heaven. There is no assurance of salvation. The only thing you can do is do as good as you can. Good works. And I always take them to the story found in Luke 23, where Jesus is on the cross with the other two, with the other two thieves. And one of the thieves calls out against Jesus, and the other thief stands up for him and says, listen, we're here because we deserve to be here, but this man is innocent. And then Jesus says this, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. How could, how could salvation be by works if that man on the cross who was dying with Jesus, was, Jesus could give him a promise like that? And then we have Islam. I'll even talk about Islam while we're here. Islam's forgiveness is based upon two things. First of all, Allah's grace and the Muslim goods works. This is kind of like where I think a lot of people's normal thoughts go to. They would say that on the day of judgment, if a Muslim's goods work, good works outweighed his bad, and if Allah so wills it, then he may be forgiven of all his sins, and then he will enter into paradise. See, every single other religion is all about good works, all about what we do, how we function, and the gospel says, no, it's not about that at all. It's about what's been done for you. Just as Christ is in you, you are in him. Christ has done all the work. You just sit back and relax and reap the benefits. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's keep going. And then he says this. I'm spending way too much time on this first point, but I really like this. And then he goes into saying the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Let's talk about the elemental spirits here. This word could also be translated rudiments, which is like one of a row or series. Uh, that It's usually another way you could refer to the alphabet, the ABCs, because all the letters in a row. Um, so this is, this, he's playing a uh, really just a 
um, imagery here of the alphabet. And he's saying, you know, the alphabet is the building blocks and how we learn to read. It's the basic elements of knowledge. And he's saying, hey, listen, these shallow, deceptive philosophies that you are falling for, their concepts actually break down at a deeper level. The thought concepts, and it's the same thing for our society, the thought concepts pervading our society right here and right now actually break down at a deeper level. I already talked to you guys about self-care, right? At a lower level, it seems pretty good, but when I brought it up to a deeper level, it didn't make any sense. And the same way goes for moral relativism. And the same thing goes for the plausible arguments that Jim talked about last week. The same thing goes for horoscopes. It all sounds pretty good at the, at the lower level, but once you get deeper, you find that it is a hot mess and you cannot actually truly base any of your life on it. Um, he also would have been speaking specifically to the Hellenistic culture in his church. Uh, Hellenism uh, would have been um, a culture that would have been brought onto them by ancient Greece, uh, ancient Greek, and so they would have they would have thought of the elemental spirits of the universe, the angels and the demons that influence the heavenly bodies. Uh, most scholars say this is why he ad- he actually addresses this specific topic more specifically in verses sixteen through twenty, which Jim will actually cover next week. And it's also discussed in length in Ephesians chapter six, where Paul says we do not fight a battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. You can look at that there too. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, listen, these teachings, these hollow and deceptive philosophies actually originate from demonic spirits. All the things that I just mentioned to you actually originate from demonic spirits. So when when Muslims are worshiping Allah, worshiping Allah, they're not worshiping the same God as Christianity. They're actually just worshiping a big demon. And when you see these people worshiping in the Jehovah's Witness temple, in the Mormon temple, Hinduism and Buddhism, they're actually worshiping demons. And what's so cool is Paul is actually calling people out in the Colossae church who are teaching these things. Say, listen, you're actually demonic. The things you're teaching are demonic. You think you got it right, you're in the church, but you're demonic. I mean, I mean I've said some mean things to some people. I've never called anybody demonic. And the next time somebody gets upset with me for me saying something to them, I'm like, well, let's look at Paul. And we can even go even further into Galatians when he talks about um, he talks about circumcision. Well, if circumcision makes you holy, why don't you just go ahead and cut off the whole thing and be the holiest? I mean, Paul brings it all the way up. I'm I'm just saying, don't get mad at me next time I call you out. All right. And here, here's the thing. Hey. I just want to take time to pause a little bit and talk about this a little bit. C.S. Lewis actually says there's two great errors when it comes in handling demonic. There's those who pay too much attention to it, and there's those who, who ignore it altogether. Now, we live in a culture mostly that ignores it altogether. As a matter of fact, we just deny that it even exists, and that's when it gets really dangerous. But I do think that there are people, like if you get a flat road on the way to work, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it was Satan, he just didn't want me, or on the way to... Wait, maybe you're going to Bible study. Satan just went, no, maybe you just hit a, a, t- a nail, bro. You don't have to demonize everything. You know, there's, there's those, but there's also those who don't, don't even acknowledge it at all. And so C.S. Lewis says, hey, listen, let's press pause. Let's find the happy ground in the middle. Some things are demonic. Some things aren't. But let's just, let's just rein it in. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Hey, here, let me just, if I were to sum this up, if you were to say, hey, let's break these false teachings down to the core. What is it? The core. 
their core is this, the cross is not sufficient. The cross is not sufficient. That's exactly what every single religion I just spoke to you about, every single thought concept I just spoke to you about, their whole, at their core, if you break it down, the cross is not sufficient. And, and here's the thing. If you and I as Christians can understand one doctrine of truth, I call it, well, I don't call it, scholars call it this, the double impartation. If you can understand the double impartation that Christ has been given my sin and I have been given Christ's righteousness. If we could understand that as a people of God, we are eons ahead of this world. Double impartation. That our, our baggage, our sin has been given to Christ, and Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection has been given to us. If we can get that right, if we could only get one, that one truth right, we would be way ahead of the game. Let's continue on in verses 9 through 10. I've spent too long on one verse. Oh, man. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Here he goes, emphasizing again the body of Christ. We talked about that before, how they thought the physical body was, was evil. And so he, he emphasized that he lives, the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Uh, and like I said, we addressed this a lot in week three, so I'm not going to dwell on it too long here. If you want to go back and listen to it, you can. But I do want to point out this word pleroma. Pleroma is the Greek word for the word fullness. And, and what that means, it's the sum total. So it's the sum total of all that God is. All of his being and his attributes are found in Christ. And what's really cool is Paul is actually using this word because he's going against a Gnostic view within the church. Gnosticism, which means comes from the, the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. Um, and so it's, it's this reaching for this. It's, an, it's a spirituality that goes for reaching more knowledge. And so he's, he uses the word pleroma because this word was actually used by Noxus, Gnostics who held that pleroma was the source of all emanations through which men could come to God. That's right. Paul says, there is no other path. There are no other paths to God. The full emanation, the only way you can get there is through Jesus Christ. The only way you can get to God is through Jesus Christ. And, and this pleroma was actually the highest point in the Gnostic religious experience. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, even Gnosticism, the asceticism, the Gnosticism, all that stuff that you're dealing with, he's, he's attacking it all very politely using their verbiage, using their language, using in a way that it, it kind of, it's masked to us because we don't know the culture that they lived in. But when we see it in its fullness, it's, it's amazing. So it says, and, and look at verse 10, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness is what it says. Uh, this, uh, you are, it, you could also translate, you are complete in him. The Greek verbs indicate and establish permanence. It's not something that can be changed or moved. Hey, here's a more literal translation. You are, and you are in him, having been completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. See how many times fullness shows up in that passage? That's kind of the, the language of the Greek there. It's, the word full is there way more than the English puts it there. And in him, you have been completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. Paul is saying, hey, listen, when, when you receive Christ, Christ is in us and we are in him, we receive the whole Godhead. 
The whole Godhead comes into your life when you receive Jesus. What more could you possibly need? What more can these false teachers add to that? What new experience, what other additional divine person can you receive than what you already have received when you have Jesus Christ? Here's the point Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. You do not need anything more than you already have. You just need to understand more of what you have already received. Let me say it again. You do not need any more, anything more than you already have. You just merely need to understand more of what you have already received. Let's go on to verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Oh, look at him. He's playing with the mystery of the Old Testament I showed you a couple of weeks ago. Your whole self rule, ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul here is also addressing uh, what would be called Gnostic legalism. Gnostic legalism is a little different than Jewish legalism. So Jewish legalism uh, is addressed by Paul in the Galatians, and most of us know what that is. That would be that circumcision and obedience to the law were necessary for salvation, which we obviously know is not true because it has nothing to do with our works or our observance of the law. It has everything with Jesus Christ. Well, what legal, uh, legalism within the Gnostic realm was is that observing the Jewish law would actually help a believer become more spiritual. So you don't get circumcised to be saved, but you do get circumcised because it makes you, you, you attain a new level of spirituality. And we've talked about this already several times before, but he just, he attacks it again. It helped them attain the spiritual eliteness if they were to observe the Jewish law of circumcision. And it's so cool if you read it here, it says, you, and having been buried with him, in, with him, there it is again, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working God who raised him from the dead. What's really cool is in the Greek verbs, they're very, very expressive. You were co-buried, you were co-raised, and you were co-made alive. And since we are in him and he is in us, what more could you possibly need? What more could you possibly need? Paul is beating a dead horse. That's why I don't mind beating dead horses whenever I preach. You know, I, sometimes I like to keep it fresh. And I don't want to keep preaching the same thing. But you know what? The God, God says it don't matter. Listen, Paul always beat the dead horse. So if Paul, one of the greatest apostles of all time, you know, if he did it, so can I. So I'm sorry if I repeat myself. I like it. Anyway, I like to hear myself talk about the same things over and over. <laughs> all right. Sorry, I had, to, I had to bring the pressure down. I felt a little, I feel a little pressure. Okay. Let's continue. Uh, let's talk about baptism a little. First of all, uh, to baptize uh, had a literal sense, and it also had a figurative sense. So uh, there was the, the, the word baptize can mean to dip or to immerse, which is the literal sense, which is uh, a, a specific ritual, a sacrament of the church, which, by the way, if you haven't been baptized and you have been newly saved, or maybe you've been saved and never been baptized before, or maybe you've been baptized but you were still a sinner and you need to get baptized again, August 30th, I think, it's the last Sunday, It's a, and excited decided we're going to do baptisms. It was supposed to be in May, so it's rescheduled. So for those of you who need to get baptized, make sure you mark your calendars, and we'll sign you up. I can't wait to dunk you, but nonetheless, let me keep going. So there's two different ones. There's a literal one to, to actually be baptized, and there's a figurative. And, and the figurative is actually used throughout Scripture as well, like in 1 Corinthians 10, when the nation of Israel 
walked through the Red Sea. It says that they were baptized unto Moses. Obviously, when they walked across, there was no water. It was dry land, therefore no water was involved. But it was an identification with Moses. It was the Israelites saying, okay, I'm under the Moses of leadership. And so he uses it here in the figurative sense. And that's just for me to clarify in case... You see, you read this passage and you think that baptism saves you because it doesn't. Baptism does not save you. No amount of water can make you come alive in Christ. Water baptism is a picture of, an of a spiritual experience. And the circumcision actually played the same role in the Old Testament. So, um, Now, many scholars, just to point this out while I'm here, many scholars say that baptism merely replaces circumcision physically, but within the spiritual, they are actually a little bit different. See, circumcision of the heart actually comes at the time of conversion. Circumcision of the heart is done by God. Only God can do that. We are put off of our old self. We had nothing to do with putting off of our old self. God did that for us in making us alive. And then baptism is something that happens in obedience. How we respond to that circumcision. How we respond to being made alive. God has brought us alive and now we choose to be baptized. So they're not the same. They're not interchangeable. One is not done away with the other. And I'm not saying physical baptism, but I'm talking about spiritual baptism, or excuse me, spiritual circumcision when God cuts off the old self. I just thought I'd put that in there, a little theology for you while we're in the passage. Um, also, let's go on to verses 13 through 15. By the way, this one is my favorite point. These are 13 through 15 is my favorite part of the message, so I hope you're still paying attention. Let's go there. When you were dead in your sins and your, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That shows us right there that God took the initiative. We did not bring ourselves alive. God did. It was the operation of God. That's right. We're not a Calvinistic church. We're not an Arminianistic church. We're a biblical church. And when I read that passage, I see that God's the one that makes us alive. Okay? He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know what I've noticed uh, within this passage when I see verse 13, it says, when you were dead in your sins. See, some people think that sins are just what make us bad. But the gospel tells us that sins didn't just make us bad, it actually made us dead. Sin doesn't make you bad, it makes you dead. And we as people, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually turned off to the work of God. We're spiritually turned off to the power of God. We're spiritually turned off to the spirit of God. We're spiritually turned off to even have to do anything with the kingdom of God. And only because of the initiative of Christ, Christ coming to this earth, are we able to be able to respond and come into a right relationship with him. God was the main operative in our story. You know what? I hate it. That's right. I use the word hate. I know I shouldn't. I hate it when people give their testimony and they say, I found God. Number one, brother, God was never lost. God, you found God. No, God knew where he was. God found you, dog. Okay, just stop saying I found God. I'm, done. I'm just done with it. I'm done with it. That's so 1990s. Let it die. Let's get on to the right page and realize that God found us. Okay? Okay. Sorry for those of you who have said that you found God to me. I rolled my eyes. I looked away, though. I rolled my eyes. Okay? Hey, I didn't tell you to cut off your genitalia, so don't get mad at me. All right. 
Oh, ooh. This, all right, so what's really cool about this passage, and it's my favorite point, this is my favorite point of the whole passage, is that when Paul says this in verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's actually making reference to what, what they would know within their culture called a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph was a spectacular victory celebration parade that was held in the city of Rome. And so anytime there was an army that would go out and win a battle, they would actually come back, well, at least an important battle, they would come back uh, from that battlefield, and as they entered into the city, it was, there was this lavish and entertaining propaganda spectacle which reminded the people of the glory of Rome in its military superiority above all other nations. Oh, now we see what Paul is getting at when he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He's saying, hey, listen, this is a reminder to the people of the glory of God and his superiority above all other nations through Christ. There would be dancing and there would be singing, patriotisms, there would be incense burning. And so the way it would happen is as the people would come in first, the commanders would come in, followed by the generals, and then the infantry. But at the very, very end, the very end, linked in chains, stripped of their clothes, would be the remaining soldiers of the losing nation. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, that's what Christ has done to the devil. That's what Christ has done to the demons. That's what Christ has done to the power and authorities that are battling against you. They're stripped naked, they're changed, and they're at the back end. This is a victory. God is all about the victory. When he, he, he literally, it's a triumph. He's, Paul is painting the picture of a triumph of Rome. Do you understand what he's getting at? That is an amazing thought concept. He uses the whole picture of something they would have definitely been a part of. He's saying the dancing and the singing, the entertaining, the lavishness of it all ought to be the way we are with Christ because he has taken captive every single one of our enemies. They're stripped naked. They're chained. They have no power over us. That's what, hey, here's the thing. Jesus Christ didn't just die for our sins. He died unto sin, which means his death didn't give us just victory over us. He, 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 his death literally gives us power to overcome the hold of sin in our own lives. Paul declares that when Jesus died, he seized these powers by the throat, chained them and dragged them in triumph behind him, like a Roman general marching through the streets of Rome. His chained captives walking behind in total subjugation. Did you know sin is kind of like a gun? It's like a gun. And what's funny about it is, is, is guns are kind of scary, right? Like, especially if somebody's pointing one at you. Uh, I think a lot of the time when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to the spiritual realm, I think a lot of the times Satan or one of his demons or one of his minions actually have a gun to our head. And, and what's so strange about that is that's pretty scary. But what this passage tells us here is that, guess what? That gun, it doesn't have any bullets. There's no bullets in that gun. There's no bullets and there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to bow down to Satan. There's no reason to bow down to any demonic force. When, when your flesh, when the sin in your heart begins to attack you and begins to want you to, to bow down to it and want you to, to act in sin, it feels like there's nothing you can do about it. It feels like you have to do it because there's a, 
There's a gun pointed to your head, and the Holy Spirit wants you to know today, guess what? There's no bullets in the gun. There's no bullets in the gun. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to bend, bow down. You don't have to do that sin that you keep on doing. It feels like a gun's pointed to your head. And guess what? There is a gun, but there's no bullets. And catch this. The only power Satan has over you is the power that you give him. The issue is, is that we have the bullet in our hands. Instead of holding it tightly and claiming victory, we give it right back to him. We give it to Satan. And we allow him to have that. We allow him to have that power. The only power Satan has over you is the power you give to him. Because guess what? The, bullet, the gun isn't loaded. The gun is not loaded. You don't have to bow down to the pressures of the world. You don't have to bow down to the sin that you've been battling for years. You don't have to bow down to your friends who are negatively peer pressured. You don't have to bow down to what the world tells you to do. You don't have to bow down to it because the gun isn't loaded. This isn't a real gun, but it isn't loaded. There's no bullets in there. We have the bullets. We, we have the bullets. God has disarmed them. That's what he's having disarmed the powers. They are stripped naked. They are chained. They are ashamed. Or they're at the back end. And we're at the front, boys and girls, because guess what? We're in the army of God. And guess what? We have, we have in heaven a, we have a cloud of witnesses cheering us on as we enter. That's how it happens for all of us. A cloud of witnesses is cheering us on. So as we go into the song, this last song, I just want us to, to really focus in, focus in on this thought concept. As a matter of fact, we're not even singing a new song. We're going to sing the same song we sung before the sermon because I don't think you got it the first time. I don't think you realize when we sing about God never losing a battle, you don't actually realize that he's never lost a battle. As a matter of fact, the battle is already so far gone that we're already marching in victory. We are part of a royal triumph. We are in line. We are coming back to a parade. We are coming back to incense. We are coming back to dancing and singing. We are coming back to a party as people, they, they are cheering us on. Christ in us means us in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word today. And we're so grateful that there isn't any bullets in this gun. There's no bullets in the gun of sin. You have disarmed the powers and authorities. And you have triumphed over them through the cross. We're so grateful today that even when this hollow, deceptive philosophy of the world creeps into our minds, we know that it's a lie and it's a hoax because it's based on human tradition. We know it's a lie and a hoax because we know that the cross is sufficient. And so God, as we sing this last song, help this be our rally cry. Help us picture in our minds the cloud of witnesses cheering us on as we enter into heaven, a part of the army of God with the with the enemy at our backs, with the enemy at the end, stripped naked, without any type, any kind of way of having power over us. They are subject to us because of the cross. And we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.